So today I have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Karen Hirsch from Stanford, who happens to be in town. Dr. Hirsch will be talking about brain injury after cardiac arrest and how to manage it and how to prognosticate and various issues surrounding it. Uh, to give you a little bit of background, Dr. Hirsch spent a lot of time out here in Baltimore, did her um, undergrad at Hopkins, um, went out to Stanford for her uh, MD, uh, and where she stayed um, to become chief resident ultimately of neurology and stayed on as faculty following a um, fellowship there in critical care as well. <clears throat> so uh, Dr. Hirsch has published uh, multiple papers on this very topic, most recently over the past year in critical care medicine. She's uh, grant funded from the American Heart Association on um, post-cardiac arrest um, following post-cardiac arrest uh, brain injury, novel methodologies to quantify severity and predict outcome. So lucky to have you in town and thank you for making the effort to come over and talk to us. Great, thank you. Can you guys hear me okay? All right, great. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate that it worked out. Um, I see lots of familiar faces in the audience, including people who trained me. Uh, so thank you so much. It's great to be back in Baltimore. It's like a second home. Um, this is, these are the things that we're going to talk about. I understand that there's a mixed audience, which is great. I always like that when I'm, I'm giving talks about this topic uh, because I think it helps. And so this is a slide I've added recently about the rules of engagement. So since I have a six-year-old who's in kindergarten, I've had the joy of looking at the education system in a new light and realizing that the way we educate people is actually incredibly antiquated and it's actually not very effective at all. And so in the bottom corner, you see a study by a physics uh, professor at Stanford. He's a Nobel laureate. And in his second academic career, he's gotten interested in education and how we educate people in college and med school and grad school. And it turns out that giving lectures is an incredibly ineffective way to educate people. But nonetheless, <laughs> we are here and we will do our best to make it an interactive uh, sort of day and an interactive conversation. Um, it, my goal is not to impart knowledge because in this day and age you can look up knowledge, you can get on the internet and find all the things I'm about to tell you about, but it's really to synthesize stuff, bring it all together, and really have you guys have more questions than answers walking out of here, and it should be interactive. And I understand you guys mostly are physicians and nurses are working hard, and so uh, I remember what it was like to be a fellow when critical care lecture meant a brief nap or a not so brief nap, so that's fine as well. I'll try and keep you engaged. Um, we are a tertiary care center at Stanford, of course, and uh, these are just a few of the cases that we see, just like you guys are a highly specialized tertiary care center. And so it's few and far between that we see a cardiac arrest patient who walks, not walks in, but is brought in through the ER, previously healthy, out of hospital V-fib arrest. That'd be great. I would love it. That would be so, so nice for my life if I could have that. Um, here's another one. So this is a seizure patient, right? And then this, this woman is, has a near SUDAP, so she almost has a uh, sudden unexplained death and epilepsy, but then she gets resuscitated and she's 21, and then we're cannulating her for ECMO. Um, and so I imagine that your cardiac arrest looks a lot like our cardiac arrest. Uh, very complicated patients. Why are we, uh, you know, sort of, why am I as a neurologist here talking to you? Well, cardiac arrest is common. There's 500,000 at least cardiac arrests in the United States every single year. Huge variability in out-of-hospital care. So when you look at Europe, they do a great job of training um, their 
citizens about how to do CPR, much higher rates of bystander CPR than we get in the United States. And if you look in the US, if you happen to have a cardiac arrest in Baltimore versus uh, in Glen Burnie, you're much, you know, the, the rates of sort of resuscitation by bystanders are gonna be very different depending on where you are, who's around, et cetera. Um, so of those who we actually successfully resuscitate, um, a high percentage of those are gonna remain comatose. And that's why I am here as a neurointensivist talking to you about cardiac arrest. What is post-cardiac arrest syndrome? So it's, you know, it's this uh, sort of nice term, but at the end of the day, it encapsulates lots and lots of different things. Uh, so we realized in the last sort of uh, 10 years or so that CPR is no longer quite so important, and we've taken out rescue breaths, and we've focused really on good, hard, fast chest compressions. And the idea is that we've changed away from cardiopulmonary resuscitation and go into cardiocerebral resuscitation. And again, we're de-emphasizing ventilation, and we're focusing on perfusion to the two organs that matter most, which is the brain and the heart, in order to get those going again. And you can see here that there's this, uh, you know, sort of four parts to the post-cardiac arrest syndrome, where you have neurologic injury, cardiac injury, and then the underlying problem that got you there in the first place, plus all of your other end organ dysfunction. And again, the reason that I'm here talking to you is that 60 to 80% of patients who survive to return of spontaneous circulation die because of their brain injury. They're not dying from recurrent cardiac arrest. They're not dying from systemic multi-organ failure. Um, you know, they, they are, some of them are, 20% of them are, but the vast majority of patients who survive ROSC are going on to die because their brain injury, they progress to brain death, or someone withdraws care. And we'll get to that and we'll talk about that. Um, so this is a slide I show, and people on the West Coast always have a hard time identifying Baltimore. I always, uh, you know, think that that's such a classic picture of Baltimore. But in my relatively short career, these are the places where I've done car uh, resuscitated someone from a cardiac arrest. Uh, so just a good story for the one in Baltimore. I was driving home after a long day on call, and it was a Sunday afternoon, and there was a person splayed out in a parking lot, and he was cyanotic, and I. It was like, I've been working for 30 hours, I'm gonna just keep driving. And then, you know, the, the human and physician in me turned around and uh, called 911 and started doing CPR and EMS showed up and uh, I was like, he needs to be intubated, he needs Narcan IV. And they were like, don't worry. And they just bagged him and gave him some IM Narcan and he woke up and walked away. And he was like, thank you. <laughs> and I was like, only in Baltimore is that what how you resuscitate people from cardiac arrest, so great. Um, the one is the one of them is the Outer Banks, where uh, I had a near drowning, and then the other one is Half Moon Bay, where someone choked on something at Easter brunch. So uh, you never know when you're going to have to re resuscitate someone out of hospital. Uh, the point of this slide is not to go through this in detail, what the physiology is, but simply to say that the physiology is complex. Um, you go through states, and it's it's not perfect. When people when we do animal models of cardiac arrest, it's really nice because you, you sort of know when there's no flow and when there's low flow and when there's reperfusion. And in the real world, it's not that great. And we'll talk about it a little bit when we talk about neuromonitoring and that we don't have great ways of figuring out what state someone is in because a blood pressure that you know, might be fine on an arterial line or might give you a systemic pulse, we don't know if that's adequate or not for cerebral perfusion. We don't know if it's normal. We don't know what state they're in. But you can see that there's a spectrum of injury and physiology and pathophysiology that people go through during cardiac arrest. And again, this is a somewhat antiquated slide. It's uh, basic science from 2000. But the point is simply to say that the physiology is very, very complex. And that anytime you want to pick one specific target and say, I'm going to come up with a drug 
or I'm going to come up with a small molecule or whatever it is, and I'm going to target this protein or that protein, you can see that it becomes problematic because you're missing a lot of uh, you know, pieces of the cascade. And we'll talk a little bit about why that, that is why we think temperature management matters so much, is that it works on all different phases of that cascade. Um, so shifting gears a little bit, just to talk about pre-hospital management and systems of care, we participate in the International Cardiac Arrest Registry, which was uh, formulated by Niklas Nielsen and investigators in Europe, uh, and then sort of fed into the TTM trial, which we'll talk about as well. Uh, but we fill it, we are one of the US sites that participates in that registry, and it's funny because we fill out our case report forms for that, and they say, are you a tertiary center that has cardiac arrest designation? Or are you a referral center that has cardiac arrest designation? And my, my research coordinators are always like, I don't, you know, what does this mean? I don't understand. And I'm like, it doesn't apply to us because in the United States, we don't have great systems of care. We have really great systems of care for trauma. You guys understand that well here. We have okay systems of care for acute stroke. And it'll be interesting to talk to my colleagues later and see what they're doing. We're just having conversations now in our counties. Uh, about what ambulance diversion scheme is going to be for acute stroke, large vessel occlusions, et cetera, et cetera. We're having these discussions. You guys in trauma, uh, you know, the people who do trauma had those discussions 15 years ago and did it best. Um, but it's this idea that we need to do better for cardiac arrest too, because there's good data that if you go to a good center that has capabilities and expertise in cardiac arrest resuscitation, your outcomes are going to be better. It is shocking to me that there are still centers in the United States that don't do temperature management after cardiac arrest, but it's true and it's not uncommon. And so this idea that you can have a hub and spoke model, which is what this picture is supposed to be, um, is something important. And I think that when we think about systems of care, it's a huge opportunity for research and it's something that will be coming online uh, in the future, but something that we're not great at doing currently. Uh, so the first thing I want to talk about about resuscitation is hemodynamics. I think this is something that gets lost a lot in the conversation when we talk about resuscitation. Everyone likes to focus on temperature. It's a personal interest of mine. It's a research interest. Um, but we'll go through a little bit of the scant data that's out there. And I always joke with my CT surgeons and my cardiologists when I have a patient that ends up in the CCU is that I feel like we're arm wrestling a little bit or playing tug of war a little bit between the brain and the heart. And that the cardiologists are always sort of saying, you know, lower is better, lower blood pressure, myocardial dysfunction, you know, whatever, whatever we want, lower. And we're always saying, ah, oh, the brain needs to see better flow. We want the blood pressure higher, higher, higher. And then we usually just meet in the middle and we both agree that we're sort of unhappy, but that we have to compromise because that's life. And so there's this idea that we don't really understand what the appropriate target is, but we know that it's important. So this was a nice uh, paper, just a prelim uh, sort of idea paper coming out of Penn from several years ago. And they, much like sepsis, said, we're going to do early goal-directed therapy for cardiac arrest. And we're going to have a whole algorithm. They really modeled it on the sepsis criteria, uh, which we all know where that is you know, going or uh, has been. But nonetheless, you can see it looks very similar to your surviving sepsis guidelines, where you want to maintain a MAP and you want to maintain an SVO2. And it's great, and it's a good idea, and I think it's very important. But again, as I alluded to, they don't have anything about neuromonitoring in their algorithm. They don't have any way to measure cerebral perfusion. They're not looking at brain waves. They're not really looking at anything having to do with the brain. But their whole point of this resuscitation algorithm is that we need to improve neurologic resuscitation after cardiac arrest. 
And so, again, not to get bogged down in the details, but the point was that when they, the PCAR is the um, post-cardiac arrest resuscitation, so that's what PCAR is in this slide. And so they found that, one, it was actually hard to get the patients to actually complete their, their algorithm. Uh, very small numbers, of course, but that it was you know, very difficult to sort of have a paradigm shift for the way people think about resuscitating these patients, and that about half of the patients didn't even complete the resuscitation algorithm. But that in those who did, it looks like that's where the significance was for mortality. So if you actually were able to complete the algorithm, um, there we go. So if you're able to complete this algorithm of resuscitation, then they got a, a statistically significant p-value for mortality. CPC, again, we'll talk about outcomes in a minute, but it's an outcome scale. Not a significant difference there, but for mortality, it looked like there was something there. Um, what's another study looking at hemodynamics? This was in JAMA uh, a couple of years ago now. I'm getting old, 2013. It feels like yesterday. Um, but this was a study that wasn't designed to look at hemodynamics. Um, it was designed to look at sort of acute resuscitation medications. So do we add vasopressin and steroids into our ACLS, or do we just keep it with epi? epi, 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 and it, the outcome was favorable neurologic uh, recovery after cardiac arrest. And really what they found was that the patients that got vaso, uh, vasopressin and steroids did better than the patients who got epi. And so we did this in our, we have a multidisciplinary critical care journal club, and we discussed this paper right when it came out. And uh, all the non-neurointensivists were like, this is great. It's definitely the steroids. It's definitely the steroids. And all the neurointensivists were like, steroids fail in every single neurologic disease. They never show benefit. And then the surgeons were like, but that's all you guys know how to do is give steroids. So shouldn't you be happy that they're working? And we were like, no, 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 we do more. And so what, they, what we failed to sort of talk about was what was hidden in the appendix, which was that the patients in the vasopressin and steroids group actually had significantly higher blood pressures and significantly higher SVO2s, or central venous oxygen, than the patients who didn't. And it was really interesting because they buried this information in the appendix. They didn't even talk about it in the discussion. But I would posit to you that this is probably actually where most of the benefit is coming from, because many other studies have shown you that vasopressin and steroids actually probably don't matter that much in resuscitation for neuro outcomes. So food for thought, I would say, at that point. And then finally, our last one, just to talk about hemodynamics, is this was a retrospective study, uh, CCM, from a couple years ago. And it was basically looking at a time-weighted average, so how long people are spending in certain MAP goals by 10-point uh, ranges. And what you could see here is that you are much uh, more likely to have a good neurologic outcome at discharge if you are in the sweet spot here, so sort of the 70 to 90 range. Now, our algorithm, when I first started at Stanford, was actually recommending a map above 90, and it was based on some animal literature, and we never achieved it, and it was humorous to even like put that in our notes. I actually felt embarrassed for our teams that we were writing that, because no one is going to put a post-cardiac arrest patient with a map greater than 90, yet based on some animal studies, we were recommending it, and we've subsequently changed it, and we talk about sort of a aiming for a MAP greater than 70. But again, you know, cardiologists will tell you MAP above 60 is just fine. And this is not prospective randomized data, of course. I think that's a trial that needs to be done. But it, again, is some food for thought about where we keep the hemodynamics after cardiac resuscitation. Let's just talk very briefly about outcomes measures. Um, this... Uh, is an interesting topic because when you critically think of the literature, you can't assess it unless you think critically about the outcome and whether or not the outcome is a meaningful outcome. 
And so this is a statement from circulation in the AHA, and it says that we think that we don't really have good data. We don't really know what the outcome measure should be, but it seems reasonable that 90 days is probably good, and maybe a modified Rankin score or maybe a CPC is a reasonable outcome measure for cardiac arrest trials. And by the way, we all think we're the best at doing research and providing clinical care, and maybe we should all talk to each other when we design trials and try and standardize it so that we all have the same outcome measure but off you go and do your own research and think about it. So I often joke that on any given day, I might have an MRS of three, and sometimes my husband, I think, almost like at baseline has an MRS of three, where he requires help with ADLs, and for those of you that are certified in the modified Rankin, it's like, can you make yourself a sandwich? Can you toilet? Like, could you survive for seven days without help? And I honestly think that there's times when most adults, especially post-call, would probably be at least a modified Rankin of of three or more. And so we looked at this, this was just published in Critical Care Medicine, and we looked at how our patients do over the first year after cardiac arrest. So this was an R01 funded study um, that I took over, and we were looking at it, and we were following them up at one, three, six, and 12 months. And we were doing multiple outcome scales at one, three, six, and 12 months. And really what we found is that patients or, or subjects that have cardiac arrest continue to get better and continue to improve functionally for the first six months after their cardiac arrest. And what was, I thought, sort of most funny about this was that we published this, and then in our discussion section of this paper, we said something to the effect of like, these are very crude outcome scales. They don't tell you about what's important to patients and families. They don't say anything at all about cognitive status. And then I got a letter to the editor from a group in Italy who, very nice, and I appreciate them thinking about it, but they were like, who does Dr. Hirsch think she is to say that what is a good outcome and what is a bad outcome? Because of course, for our trial, we dichotomize, and then we also, you know, we say this is a good outcome and this is a bad outcome, and then here's the overall scale. And they say, this is so dogmatic, the physicians don't understand what's important to people. And, and I was like, that's my whole point. Did you read the discussion section? Um, that's what we were sort of arguing. It was like, these are not great outcomes measures. And so that for clinical trial purposes, we need them, because we need to standardize and have objective scales and objective measures that look at outcomes. But we need to do better, and we need to look at neurocognitive outcomes. We need to look at depression. We need to look at quality of life. We need to look at anxiety. A lot of people who wake up and recover consciousness, we all pat ourselves on the back. We say, great, you're doing great. You woke up, you're not vegetative. Good outcome, walk away, and they can't go back to work, and they have anxiety, and they have depression, and they have PTSD, and they get divorced, and their life falls apart, but we all walk away thinking we did a good job. All right, let's shift gears and, and talk. Again, feel free to interrupt at any time with questions, comments. Um, let's talk a little bit about temperature management. I'm gonna fly through this because uh, uh, the articles are widely available and I'm just gonna hit on the highlights. I think you guys probably know a lot of this from just being in the critical care world. Um, but 2002, two studies came out in a New England Journal, paradigm-changing trials looking at therapeutic hypothermia. The methodology between the two studies was slightly different as far as how long they were cold and what temperature they went to. But nonetheless, the idea was that hypothermia had a much um, more likely, uh, a much more favorable likelihood of a much higher likelihood of a favorable neurologic outcome if they were treated with hypothermia than normothermia. Two studies that showed that. So everyone you know, pretty much widely adopts that. Um, those, those patient populations were out of hospital arrests and they were VT, VF arrests, so uh, VTAC and VFib. Uh, it was not looking at in-hospital and it was not looking at other rhythms. So it was just primarily shockable rhythms. Fast forward to 2013 and the TTM trial or the Nielsen trial comes out. 
This was a trial largely done in Europe, and it's randomizing people to 33 degrees versus 36 degrees. Um, the outcomes here were basically that there was no difference in neurologic outcomes. Some criticisms of the study, uh, high, high rates of bystander CPR, pretty healthy baseline population, uh, and relatively short duration of cardiac arrest. Uh, so when people talk about implementing this or, or applying this to their local population, those are some of the things that have to be considered. Uh, we'll talk more. Nicholas Nielsen was the primary author, and he has the TTM2 trial in the pipeline, uh, which we'll talk about at the end of this um, and what that's going to look like. Uh, but really, I think, gave people a pause when they saw this article. And there's been a lot of variability about how, how it's been implemented. Um, but let me just show you this slide. So if we go back to the 2002 papers, and we actually look at the normothermia group, it turns out that they weren't really normothermic. The va a lot of those patients were, had fever. And so the question then becomes, was the fever hurting the patients or was the hypothermia actually helping the patients? And we just don't know the answer to that. And so the TTM2 trial is actually going to have two arms and it's going to be 32 to 33 degrees for one arm and then it's going to be no fever for the second arm. There's a lot of debate and discussion and, and I'd love to hear what you guys think about that, um, about whether or not there's equipoise to do that. And uh, we've been talking a little bit you know, just before this talk and I've been talking with my institution uh, and I think there probably is equipoise. I think that hypothermia, I am a believer in hypothermia, and I think there's probably going to be a benefit, but I am also a clinical researcher, and I believe there's equipoise, but it does give you pause a little bit. Um, really quickly, to shift gears, let's talk about in-hospital arrest. Uh, so this data is much murkier and muddier than the out-of-hospital arrest. This was just one trial that I pulled out to show you from JAMA that just came out a couple months ago. And it, it was a huge meta-analysis from Get With The Guidelines. Uh, so it's database, but you know, messy data, but lots of data. So there's pros and cons to that kind of study. Uh, but they actually found that hypothermia was potentially harmful for in-hospital cardiac arrest, potentially harmful for patients with PEA in the hospital. Um, there's not a lot of discussion about physiologically why that might be. Um, there's obviously selection bias when you're looking at a registry. Uh, but, you know, we cool all of our in-hospital arrests. I don't know what you guys do. I'd love to hear um, more. Uh, but it does give you pause and, and make you wonder if I'm actually hurting these people. Uh, so that was just in JAMA. So what have the guidelines done to address this? Do they help us at all in making our decision? Uh, they, I, I would say they don't. Uh, I think guidelines are great uh, for some things when there's lots of literature and data. Guidelines are also great at being very objective and they've gotten even better about not relying on expert consensus and expert opinion, right? So to have a level one recommendation, you need randomized control trial evidence and we don't have a lot of it. So ILCOR, which is the International Consortium on Resuscitation, uh, along with AHA, came out with these guidelines in 2015. And they basically say, pick a temp, any temp, somewhere between 32 and 36 and maintain it. Okay, not super helpful. Um, the AAN guidelines, uh, I was a reviewer on and they're embargoed, but they're also, so I can't tell you too much what they say, but they're coming out shortly. And they also are not super helpful because they have to interpret the evidence objectively and they basically say, yes, you know, probably any temperature in between 32 and 36 is gonna be reasonable. And of course we need more literature. So just to pause and try and wake everybody up again, 
you know, I'd love to hear if anybody wants to say what you guys do here and what your practice is. I will tell you that at Stanford, we try and get to 33 degrees. We cool in hospital and out of hospital. We cool shockable and non-shockable. Um, but we also, I think, are much more likely now if there's hemodynamic instability or hemorrhage to say 36 is reasonable as well, but we still try and get to 33. I know a lot of centers have completely abandoned 33 degrees as a target. Um, anybody want to tell me thoughts, opinions, pr local practice while we refresh our circulation and attention here? <laughs> Do you guys have a standardized protocol? Is it ad hoc? Is it <laughs> neurointensivists in the room? We do have a standardized uh, pathway, and recently we revised it to 32 to 36 uh, in the last uh, year or so. Um, and I think it's really dependent on the, the stability to get to 32 with some more traumatic patients. Sure. Uh, but uh, you know, I think the, the idea of you know maintaining patients at some level TTM, calling it not the long hypothermia, but just TTM management for a period of 24 hours, followed by 48 hours of normal thermia, or whatever, you, whatever target you chose to begin with. It's kind of the standard that we're trying to uh, approach. Um, one question I have for you, though, is uh, what do you do with a patient who comes from a nursing home with advanced dementia as part of your Yep. Yeah, so just to summarize for the purposes of the recording, we heard that uh, the local practice is there is standard guidelines, 32 to 36 is reasonable, 24 hours of controlled TTM with another 48 of controlled normothermia, which mirrors is sort of exactly what our policy is as well. Um, and then the question was, what do you do with someone who has a cardiac arrest uh, with advanced dementia? Or I would even expand the question and say, you know, advanced uh, other medical comorbidities, et cetera. So, um, it's a difficult gray area, I think. Um, we obviously try and talk to the families. One of our exclusion criteria for our temperature management protocol is a pre-existing uh, debilitated state or pre-existing condition that's likely to limit life expectancy to less than six months. Um, now that gets gray, right, because it's kind of hard to say in someone who has a treated cancer, but you know it's going to recur at some point, or someone who has a dementia but is in a nursing home and doesn't really have any other comorbidities, when are they going to um, you know, get their aspiration pneumonia event. Uh, we will still try and cool those patients or do temperature management on those patients, but we have very clear discussions up front that it's a time-limited trial, meaning, um, and, and this sort of does go against everything I'm going to tell you in a minute about giving time for prognosis, so I realize that I'm contradicting myself, but we sort of say it's a time-limited trial, you know, we're going to, if, if the family's on board, of course, and the surrogates are on board, uh, that we're going to do temperature management. It's going to be 72 hours. It's going to take us at least a week to prognosticate, but at the end of the week, we're sort of digging in for that week, but that we're going to have these very hard conversations and really be shifting towards palliative-focused care if at the end of five to seven days we're not getting anywhere um, in the absence of other clear guidance. And the reason for that is that we have had patients where we've had good results and they've woken up and recovered consciousness and had a few more months of life. Uh, that the family thinks is valuable. Uh, but I agree it's a very difficult area, uh, especially you know, when we think about limited resource utilization. Obviously, we treat the individual patient, but if we're treating every 88-year-old that's demented and has a cardiac arrest, you're taking a bed away from a young patient who, who also would like to have that ICU bed. I imagine you guys have a bed shortage, just as almost every hospital in the United States as a tertiary care center does. And so we have to have these hard conversations about that. Any other comments? I think from a 
initial rhythm standpoint, my feeling overall is that I think there's a big patient selection bias that affects our data, but the brain, why should the brain care what the reason for its lack of blood flow is? Yep. Yeah, so the comment was as far as initial rhythm, uh, there's probably some selection bias going into this, but does the brain really care what the initial rhythm is? Um, I think when we think about it from a physiologic standpoint, the PEA and the asystole happen for other reasons. And I think that's the same thing that goes into the in-hospital arrest looking worse. These patients are sick to begin with. They're in the hospital for a reason. Same thing with PEA and asystole. They have their secondary uh, problem to something else that's going on. So by definition, I would argue those patients are sicker going into it. Uh, but you're right, I mean, from a purely perfusion standpoint, does it matter? Uh, I, I don't necessarily think that it does. All right, does anybody know where that is? California. Lake Tahoe. No. Lake Tahoe. Lake Tahoe. All right, California. <laughs> All right, let's shift gears and talk a little bit uh, about prognostication. So uh, when I was a PGY2 at Bayview, I was uh, on call, it was like July 3rd, I'd been a neurologist for like three days, which means I wasn't a neurologist at all. And I was by myself and the MICU called me and they're like, there's this cardiac arrest patient and we need you to come talk to family. My literal, literally, my response was, I don't understand why you're calling me. <laughs> I was like, I had no idea that neurologists had any skin in the game, that they got involved with prognostication. I was like, you clearly have the wrong number. And then I called. <laughs> Carolyn, and I'm like, they're calling me, and you're my chief resident, and I don't know what to do. Um, and so, obviously, I ended up doing cardiac arrest research, and I'm very interested in prognostication. Uh, I'm also very aware that you guys have an important talk in here, and that I have to finish up in 15 minutes. So I'm going to fly through a lot of this to leave room for questions and discussion. Um, this was a study that basically looked at when prognosis is given. And it compared the medical ICU team to the neuro ICU team. And the stars that you can see in the picture are patients who were dedicated or designated as having uh, poor prognosis. Uh, uh, sorry, the, the, the bars show you when they're sort of designated as having poor prognosis. And the stars go on to show you uh, who is going to be a survivor. And the point of this slide is that in the first 24 hours, you can see that in the chart, there's huge numbers of patients that, where prognosis is being mentioned. And prognosis is being mentioned as being poor. And it's within the first 24 hours. So they're not even in the rewarming phase yet. They're still in the induction phase. And people are, are talking to families and saying, I'm sorry, you're a prognosis is poor. And then all these stars are people that go on to survive. And the point was simply this, that we actually are terrible at judging prognosis. And we really, unless the patient has multi-system organ failure with advanced you know, cancer or some other reason, that we should never be talking about prognosis in the first 24 hours of care. Never. We just shouldn't be doing it. Um, so I'll leave it at that. So when I was a PGY2 at Bayview, I looked up the Levy criteria. And you should ignore this slide completely, because I'm going to go through the slide and tell you why it's all absolutely wrong. But this was the criteria from 2006, and this was what they said. And you know, I, I was a naive trainee, but I was like, wow, false positive rates of zero. Okay, where do we ever see that in medicine? So you are 100% certain that if a patient has any of these things, that's going to 100% certain that they're never going to wake up and they're not going to do well. That's great. I love those odds. Um, so this was the old paradigm. Again, in the interest of time, we'll fly through this. But what were the limitations? So the limitations were they only identify patients who are going to do poorly. 
which is a very small subset of patients where we can say absolutely certainly this person's going to do poorly. They don't look at long-term functional outcome. And all the things I'm about to tell you about, they're highly, highly susceptible to all the things we do in critical care, which is we sedate them, we give them medication, we change their temperature, the metabolism changes. So all the things that we do to help them, we're actually hurting our ability to prognosticate. In the interest of time, I'm going to fly through these. The slides are available to you. These are just samples of articles that I pulled out. There's plenty of them. There's nice reviews on the topic. But let's just take it one by one. So it used to be that a motor response, if you had extensor posturing, posturing is not a great word, but if your best exam was extensor posturing or no motor response by day three, 100% false positive, 100% certain, 0% false positive, you're never waking up. All right, here's a nice article from AAN. Uh, so it's not prognostically reliable after hypothermia. All right, let's look at this one. This was a sort of looking at lots of different ones. So let's look at fixed dilated pupils. Let's look at early myoclonus. Let's look at motor response again. Okay, clearly it's not 100% perfect. What about um, SSEPs? So for the non-neurologists in the room, we stimulate a nerve peripherally. We look and see if there's a response in the brain. The only thing it tells you is that the circuit is intact doesn't tell you anything about processing cognition. All it tells you is that there's enough anatomy that's still intact that you can get a signal from the periphery up into the cortex. And that was also thought to be prognostically significant. All right, turns out after hypothermia, also not sensitive and specific. Um, this is another one uh, from Mayo, uh, looking at motor responses again, looking at serum neuron-specific enolase, which is a lab test. Also, again, false positive rates that are unacceptable. Um, let's keep going here. Another one, uh, and again, you know, if they have hypothermia and you're looking at corneas, you're looking at motor responses, you're looking at NSCs, not great, okay? This is one of my favorites. This was out of the Emory Neurocritical Care Group. Uh, this was published in CCM, and it was deliberately designed to be inflammatory, but I would argue that it's actually not helpful for the lay public to have uh, publications like this, which say that brain death is reversible. Um, but the point was, was that this group had a cardiac arrest patient, they got hypothermia, they got rewarmed, they had their brain death exam, they were going to the OR for organ harvest, and as they moved the patient onto the table for harvest, the patient started coughing and over-breathing the ventilator, and obviously the transplant surgeons did not like that. And so they went back upstairs to the ICU, and 24 hours later, as they say in this case report, the patient was re-declared brain dead after 24 more hours, and that they elected not to re-pursue family for organ donation the second time. Um, but what you actually read in the discussion is that it was not reversible brain death, okay? It was that they hadn't waited long enough after hypothermia and after sedating medication for all of those uh, medications to be out of the system and to be metabolized and that they really didn't do brain death in the way that they should have done, which was to wait an adequate amount of time for all those drugs to be out of the system. So. This old paradigm, which I told you not to remember and not to look at, and the reason for that is we basically debunked all of these things, um, and that you know early brain death testing also should not occur in this patient population. And I'm going to just spend, again, five minutes or less talking about some research that our group is doing uh, about trying to do better for prognostication, uh, and then we'll wrap up and leave time for questions. So this was from our group before I joined, but it was looking at MRI and quantitative MRI. Uh, and it basically showed that when you look at diffusion-weighted imaging, you can quantify how much brain tissue is below a certain threshold, and it looks like that is highly correlative with poor outcome. Um, 
This was the study, again, just to, to sort of blow through this. This has been presented but not published. I'm desperately trying to get this manuscript out. Uh, but I thought I would just show you the, the demographics. So we prospectively enrolled uh, patients. They were mixed in hospital and out of hospital. These were our demographics. These were the different rhythms that we had in our particular study, just so you can see them. Um, here's our table one about the clinical criteria, but you can see that patients are, you know, a good mix, sort of middle-aged in their 50s, not particularly elderly. Um, we usually use Arctic Sun for our cooling, but there's a different variety of, uh, of methods that we use for cooling. And you can see down at the bottom, which is what we'll talk about, the MRI uh, with the ADC value on the diffusion below a certain threshold was very highly significant. And then the NSE value was also highly significant. So let's look at this in a little more detail. Um, so again, this was the quantitative MRI work. The point, again, for all the non-neurologists in the room who are glossing over quickly, is not that the methodology is super important, but that if you actually look quantitatively at brain tissue and you look at what the threshold is on that tissue on diffusion, there's huge differences in people who do well and who do poorly. The interesting piece of this is that we can't do MRI early like we do for stroke. It doesn't actually show up, and I'll get to that in a point in a minute as to why I think that's so fascinating. But when you do early MRI, it's not great. You want to do your MRI at day two to five. Um, this was our ROC curve for looking at how specific it was. So there's an area under the curve of 0.85, which is pretty good for that particular cutoff. And then when we look at NSE, which is a lab value that helps us prognosticate, you can also see that there's a very highly significant differences between the two groups, but that this previously defined cutoff of NSE above 33, which previously people said 100% specific, you're going to die. We had patients with good outcome. Um, they were impaired, um, but they still were conscious and cognizant uh, who had an NSE above that level. Uh, again, in the interest of time, I'm just going to fly through this. So this is another manuscript we're about to put in. This has also been presented at various meetings. Um, but we looked at EEG and we looked at quantitative EEG. And, and what you can see here is that our p-values are all highly, highly significant or close, but a lot of them are highly significant uh, for looking at differences in quantitative EEG power. And, but I, what I wanted to show you is just this is one sample patient where we have spectral analysis across the EEG. And the reason that I'm showing you this and that I think it's most interesting is that there are patients who come in with relatively good EEG early on at our, you know, up to hour 12, and then something happens over the first 24 to 36 hours in their EEG, and they go into this pattern that is associated with a very poor prognosis. And the reason I think this is fascinating is that we now have data, well, EEG changes. There's patients who come in with good EEG and then die. And also MRI changes don't show up until at least 24 hours after in some patients. And so we think that this is the opportunity of time when we're helping them by cooling them but physiologically something is going on and we don't understand what it is. And this has to be a window where we can intervene and resuscitate them better and do better at targeting our resuscitation. So I would posit to you that the outcome algorithm should look something like this, um, but it's not perfect. And just talking really quickly about future directions, um, our group is very interested in biomarkers, uh, so specifically quantitative EEG. We're also looking at resting state fMRI and functional connectivity. Uh, so there's consciousness networks, there's executive function networks, there's all these networks that we don't see on structural imaging that we want to look at at functional imaging. 
Um, and then the TTM trial I alluded to, and then ICECAP, which I heard you guys uh, will probably be a site for. So these are two clinical trials that are coming for cardiac arrest. TTM is here, and then ICECAP is an interesting adaptive design where there's lots of different depths and durations of hypothermia. Uh, so those are in the pipeline for the research that's coming. Uh, this is a, a summary article about how to prognosticate, and the point to me is that that looks like a subway map, and I don't think it's very helpful. Um, and so what I would just say to all of you is that it's very critical that we have additional research and that we should never prognosticate on a single parameter, and we should never be prognosticating early for these patients. And it's hard because I think our, you know, my colleagues and other critical care services say it used to be so easy 10 years ago because if they met any of those criteria by day three, we were just done. And now we're in the situation where you guys in neurocritical care are telling us it's indeterminate prognosis, please reassess in 48 hours. Continue full supportive care. And then 48 hours later, we'll st we're still saying, it's indeterminate prognosis, please continue full supportive care and reassess in 24 to 48 hours. And it is difficult, and I think that we have to have conversations with family members about um, what's acceptable. We don't know, we don't have a crystal ball. Are they willing to have a trach and a peg and be in a nursing home within accepting a, a possibility that over six months there's gonna be improvement? Or are they gonna say, I never wanna be trached and pegged in a nursing home, even if there's a small possibility that in six months I could have some meaningful recovery? So uh, my colleagues don't like it when I put this up, but I like to joke that the neurointensivists or the cockroaches of the hospital were like the last ones that hold on to hope for some patients. And so we're the cockroaches of hope. And so they don't like that, but I think it's true. And I think we have an obligation, all of us as intensivists, I'm being you know, somewhat inflammatory, but we all work together and we're all intensivists at the end of the day, taking care of very sick people. And we all have to work together and we also have to understand that there's some uncertainty in what we do and that we have to have frank discussions with family about the limitations of our knowledge um, for patients with cardiac arrest and, and use a sort of multidisciplinary approach or a multimodal approach to prognostication, uh, using as much information as we can. Uh, our group and others are interested in putting together a prognostic score. Now, of course, there's always limitations to any score, but you could imagine something where you combine you know, the clinical characteristics of the cardiac arrest, the age of the patient, the comorbidities, the MRI, the EEG, et cetera, and you're starting to get into some meaningful data about probabilities. And then the other thing I always say is that I don't have a crystal ball. I wish I did, but I can't see the future. And so again, the discussion has to be very clear and frank with families that if there's uncertainty at all, we have to embrace that uncertainty to a degree and not be dogmatic about where we think things are going. So thank you. This is our research group. That's the Neurocritical Care and Stroke Center. Mike Grecius is an Alzheimer's researcher who I've co-opted to do functional MRI for me. Uh, Dr. Razavi is an EEG uh, faculty who I collaborate with on quantitative EEG. And you know, thank you to all of you guys who take care of these patients who are very sick. It's a difficult thing to do. Um, and obviously, thank you so much for having me. My two favorite places, so thank you very much. I think we have to be out of the room in five minutes, but uh, we can. Let them kick us out. They can kick. Okay. <laughs> There's people circling in the back, but yeah, please. Questions, comments. So, in a lot of our patients, especially in Baltimore, with long downtime, we're seeing a lot of early myoclonus, at least in the, the patients I'm caring for. And so, my question is about uh, timing of EEG. If we're not seeing 
the prognostic benefit until after 24 hours? Should we do one in that first 24 hours? Is it beneficial? Yeah, it's a good question. So the question was, just to repeat the question, was early myoclonus, what do we do with it? When do we get EEG? Um, so I think the problem with myoclonus is that it's a nonspecific finding and myoclonus can come from anywhere. And what I mean from that is that myoclonus can come from the brain, in which we call myoclonus with a cerebral correlate or myoclonic status. Uh, meaning that it's myoclonus that you're seeing because the brain is having abnormal electrical discharges. But you can also have myoclonus from muscle uh, hypoxia. You can have myoclonus from spinal cord. So when we see myoclonus, we don't really know what it is. Most of the time, it does have a cerebral correlate, and it correlates with uh, status. And we think that we should be very aggressive about treating that. And so that's why we do do EEG early on. It's not for prognosis, but it's actually to make sure that there's not underlying seizures or non-convulsive seizures, or in this case, status myoclonus. And we are very aggressive about treating that. And us and other groups have published that, in general, that's probably a bad prognostic sign. But there are case reports of people who have myoclonic status and are treated aggressively, um, including some collaborators at Columbia that I'm working with, too. They have a nice case series about myoclonic status patients who do well. So the role for EEG is twofold. One, it hasn't been validated yet for prognosis. So even though our data looks pretty, I would say, like, you know, don't rely on it. And then two, you want to make sure they're not seizing. And so that's the role for early EEG. All right. Oh, we got the official note. <laughs> All right. Thank you, guys.